morning, Remedy. If you have a Bible, you can open up your uh, Bible to Ephesians chapter 2. We are going to be in Ephesians chapter 2 looking at probably the most famous text in the Bible. Uh, I've been super excited about preaching this text for a while. And so, uh, if you have one, you can open it up at Remedy Church. We stand when we read the text, so if you're able, I'd love for you to stand with me right now. And we're going to be in Ephesians chapter 2. And I'll be reading from verses 1 through 10. After I finish reading, I'll say this is the word of the Lord. And you'll say, thanks be to God. And as we say, thanks be to God, it's all signifying in our hearts and minds that uh, we're thankful to the Lord that he would give us his scriptures. But also, uh, we're saying, what I hear, what I see, what I receive, Holy Spirit, what you teach me, I want to say yes to. I want to obey. And he'll, he'll, he'll be faithful to teach you some things this morning, uh, challenge you in some ways, and you're saying yes to those things. So Ephesians chapter 2. Verses 1 through 10. And if uh, you've never heard these verses, you basically just sang them. You just sang them that song that we just sang. So Ephesians chapter 2. Bad news first, verses 1 through 3. Really, really good news after that, verses 4 through 10. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom... We all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places In Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you've been saved through faith. And this is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. It's the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You can be seated. Let me pray. Jesus, thank you so much for this time. We pray, Lord, as we uh, I pray, Lord, as we open your word this morning, that you would come now, Holy Spirit, and teach us. God, help us have, uh, even though this might be a familiar text, new insights and new thoughts and new understandings of this amazing, amazing good news. That you have saved us. And I pray, Lord, that you would help me speak uh, truthfully and with clarity and with great conviction. Open all of our minds by the power of the Spirit to receive this and be found amazed by it. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So there was a uh, philosopher named Jeremy Bentham, lived in 1748. Through 1832, I'm reading an excerpt from one of the commentaries this week. Um, and among other things, he was the founder of utilitarianism, not a good ethic to live by, uh, which is the greatest happiness principle. He was an interesting figure in more ways than one. Uh, if you know Lost, then you know him from the TV show Lost, an alias of the character John Locke, uh, who was in a wheelchair. And funny enough, this guy uh, was in a wheelchair after his death. They would wheel him in. in anyway... In Bentham's will, he apparently left a fortune to a London hospital, but there was one condition. 
Bentham was to be present at every board meeting. Reportedly, for more than 100 years, the remains of Jeremy Bentham were wheeled into the boardroom every month and placed at the head of the table. His skeleton was dressed with 17th century garb and a little hat which uh, sat on his little wax head. And in the minutes of every board meeting, a line read after the board meeting, Mr. Jeremy Bentham, present but not voting. This was a joke from his philosophy, uh, of course. He had never voted because he had been dead since 1832 uh, while they were wheeling him in and out. And so today we come to a passage that shows us spiritually dead, but then God made us alive. Beforehand, we were present but not voting until God gave us life. We, are, we were alive physically, but dead spiritually. Present, alive, but not voting. Dead spiritually. And so as we come to this text, we're going to see in this text what our life was like when we were present not voting. But then... The life that we've been given in Christ, starting in verse 4, and how that radically changes everything, and now we are alive spiritually. And so, uh, you'll have to know, in the first kind of five minutes, ten minutes, maybe fifteen, as we look at verses one through three, um, it's going to be definitely the depths of pessimism. Uh, John Stott says, in this text, Paul will first plumb down to the depths of pessimism about man. And then rise to the greatest heights of optimism about God. And it's necessary and to look at these first three verses and exegete the first three verses uh, with great clarity. It's necessary because it only amplifies verses 4 through 10. If I launch right into 4 through 10, then there's no great appreciation for the depths of, of the great heights of what God has done. But when we look at the first three verses and we understand just how bad things were, then... We appreciate what he's done for us. So verses 1 through 3 uh, will be the first section. You can go ahead and put up number 1. This is the gospel that we're looking at. The first thing that we're going to look at is this. Who we were. Who we were. We were spiritually dead people. Like last week, I'll have several sub points that won't be on the screen. Uh, that would only frustrate you. And if you want the sub points, all you have to do is ask. Uh, but... The first thing is that we were dead spiritually. This is our life before Christ. This is man's natural nature uh, post-Genesis 3. So because of the fall, this is what every man in the line of Adam is born into. Uh, We were, if you look at verse 1, and you were dead. The you here that he's referring to is Christians in Ephesus. Therefore, likely in, in this particular region of Asia, Asia, first century Asia, uh, this was Gentiles, but this doesn't mean just Gentiles alone. Paul wrote this letter to the Ephesians, the Christians there, and so the you are Christians. So when he's talking to the you here, he's not talking to uh, people who are still not saved. He's talking to people who are saved now, and he's saying you were at one point dead. You were dead in your trespasses and sins. So we, we need to understand before we keep going This is people's life before Christ, and this is not Paul's prescription of the human situation, though you could say that, but it's more than that. Instead, it's the Bible's description or God's declaration of our human condition. So as we read this, we don't need to be too upset at Paul for calling us devil worshipers, because it's not Paul calling us that. It's the Bible declaring to us what God sees, what God uh, knows that was true about us before we were sinners. Before, I'm, I'm sorry, before we were saved. And so it says that we were dead, and it says in our trespasses 
and our sins. Why, why both? Why, why say both? Why, is he, why does it just say we were dead in our sins? Dead in our trespasses and sins. Our trespasses are highlighting kind of the, the acts of the sins, the outward nature of those things. But we were also dead in our sins, the inwardness of, about what's going on, the, the heart behind it. We were dead both in our, in our outward actions that we were doing, but we were also dead in our heart condition. Everything inside of us desired only to sin always continually, like Genesis 6-5 would say. We were dead in our trespasses and our sins. This is very bleak. This is the opposite way the world tries to tell us about who we are uh, when we're born. The opposite way the world tries to tell what the human condition is outside of Christ. The, the, the world will say we have a very high view of man, that they're basically born good. And this is not true. As Tony Marita marks, we are not morally good. We are not morally neutral. We are not mostly dead. We are totally dead. And we needed a miracle that only God could perform. So who we were, the first thing that we can see in that first three verses about who we were is that we were dead. We were dead in our trespasses and sin. Like a good Baptist pastor, the second thing that you can see, it's alliterated. We were also disobedient. We were enslaved. We were disobedient. And as a matter of fact, our disobedience causes us to follow three evil sources Noted right there in the text. We were dead and we were disobedient. And our disobedience we can see in verses 2 and 3. And once you once walked, and which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. There it is, among, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and mind. So we were disobedient. And it says that we followed the world. When we follow the world, this isn't a good thing. The world in this particular text uh, is painted in a negative light. We followed the world's influence. We followed the world's and assumed the sinful habits and attitudes and belief systems and lifestyles of the culture around us. Willingly. Headlong diving into it. And so we were disobedient by following the world. We also followed Satan. It says that we followed, the uh, verse 2, we once followed the course of this world, but we also Following the prince of the power of the air. That this is Satan himself. Uh, we were, at, before we became Christ followers, followers of the evil one. Now, this isn't a great thing to hear. It's not a popular word for all of us to hear that we were devil worshippers before we became to know Christ. But this, I think, only amplifies the amazing work of God to realize just how ridiculously bleak it was to where we are now. That we followed Satan willingly, maybe not knowingly, but willingly, before we came to know Christ. So this doesn't mean that, that we, as Jesus followers, were possessed by Satan, uh, in, in a sense that you would think of the exorcist or something. It does mean that Satan's way and, and influence and temptations held sway over us. Held sway over us, not in a way that diminishes God's sovereignty at all, but still has held sway over us as he continually laid out temptation in front of us. Like described in Ephesians chapter 5 in verses 3 through 5, whenever he would tempt us for sexual immorality and we would say yes. Or he would tempt us with impurity or we'd say yes. Or he would tempt us with covetousness and we would say yes. Or he would tempt us with filthy words or in foolish talk. We would say yes. He would tempt us to go into crude joking. We would say yes. He would tempt us with idolatry. And we would say yes. He knows us. He knows our, 
our weaknesses, he knows our impulses, and he throws these temptations out in front of us, just like you throw in worms in front of fish, and he yanks us in continually and pulls us. C.S. Lewis, uh, in a great book called Screwtape Letters, where uh, if you're not familiar with this book, it's an older demon training a younger demon how to do the work of the devil. In Screwtape Letters, he says this about how Satan continually tries to tempt us. This is quite insightful. Indeed, the safest road to hell is the gradual one. The gentle slope, soft underfoot, without sudden turnings, without milestones, and without signposts. So, we were followers of the prince of the power of the air in this gradual, unbeknownst sense. Walking willingly down the pathway towards hell. All the while being tempted by Satan and his demons in this safest road to hell. So, generally... Following the prince of the power of the air is not an all-at-headlong plunge into devil worship. You're not killing cats, which I wouldn't be against, but you're not, I'm just kidding. I'm just playing, I'm just playing. You're not, you know, burning cats in your backyard, right? It's uh, small increments because he's crafty in this way. I'm really kidding if you're a cat owner. Um, I wouldn't kill your cat. Um, so it's small increments all at once, craftiness, craftiness. And in doing that, we're following the prince of the power of the air. And so we have these three evil forces that we're following that are making us disobedient. We're following the world. We're following Satan. And lastly, we're following our own sinful desires. We might have an enemy in the world. We might have an enemy of Satan. But we also have an inward enemy. We want sin. It says in verses 3, in whom we all once lived following the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of our body and our mind. And so, while we were disobedient, we were also following our own sinful desires. We need to realize that our own sinful desires did not want Jesus, but wanted sin. It's our fault. It's not the devil's fault. It's not the world's fault. It's also our fault. We are totally culpable. Completely culpable. The Bible refers to this as the flesh, these sinful desires as the flesh. We're living in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of our body and our mind. And this means that the image of God, though not completely destroyed, has been marred, has been found to be totally depraved within us, so that nothing in us seeks out or searches to do the Lord's will. We don't seek God on our own, we don't seek his will on our own. We are totally depraved. So, not only are we dead, and not only are we disobedient, all of this makes us doomed. It makes us completely doomed and condemned. If you look at the rest of verse 3, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, we were, here it is, by nature, children of wrath like the rest of mankind. We were condemned. We are full-on, willful, just recipients of the wrath of God before Christ. We should, receive, we should receive completely the wrath of God. Dead, disobedient, and doomed. This is the picture that the Bible paints before us. We have these three evil forces working against us, and it means that God's righteous wrath, His righteous wrath is on us, and we deserve it. God is absolutely right to condemn us. Totally right to condemn us. Tony Marita Uh, remarks on how the world thinks of this. God is holy and he will not sweep sin under the rug regarding his righteous 
wrath. Many think God in the Old Testament was a God of wrath, but the God in the New Testament is like Mr. Rogers. But now, what we have now is a period of patience. Not the fact that God isn't still a God of wrath, but we have a period of patience. The door of mercy right now is wide open, and we can come into this grace and we can be saved. But the coming wrath of God, don't miss this, the coming wrath of God is worse than anything in the Old Testament. The coming wrath of God is worse than anything in the Old Testament. The Hebrew words should humble us from Hebrews chapter 10 verse 31. It is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And so at this particular point, our spiritual status could not be any more tragic than what we see. Sinclair Ferguson outlines three major obstacles from verses 1 through 3 that must be overcome. The dark powers that hold the fallen cosmos in bondage, including us, part of the cosmos. We're part of the world. The spiritual death that has now separated all of mankind from God. And the deep-seated alienation that causes the disintegration of humanity. We are wicked, wicked creatures. And then you get to verse 4. And then you get to the first two words of verse 4. Which I'm not allowed to say, but I've told Christy that this is the biggest butt in the Bible. But I said it anyway. It's so huge. It is amazingly huge. The bleakest, bleakest, bleakest picture has been painted in verses 1 through 3. And then you see, but God. I mean, think about how dreary it is. But God, John Piper says, and you have to do the obligatory one Piper quote, Oh, that men would reckon with God when their plight is hopeless. You say, I'm dead. No hope. No hope. You say, I'm captive. No hope. You know, no hope. You say, I'm hell-bent and doomed. No hope for me. No hope. We'll read on. But God. But God. Yes, dead. Yes, captive. Yes, doomed. But God. I mean, it is so bleak, so terrible. And Paul just wants to lift us from the, the depths of depths straight to the heights. There's no, there's no trajectory where we're kind of working our way. It's just the worst and then the highest of heights. But God, and then he continues, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you've been saved. And he keeps going, but God, but God. The, the most important two words likely in the Bible. But God, which leads us into the second side. The second point. That's who we were. That's who we were outside of Jesus. But in Christ, this is who we are. Number two, who we are now. We are spiritually alive people. Now, verse 4 begins a sentence. And I want you to make sure you know what the subject is. And the verb, they're not together, they're kind of separated. The subject in verse 4 is God, but God. The verb is later on in verse 5, but God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love of truth, he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses. And I'm not just kind of passing over those like they're nothing, they're huge, right? I'm trying to get to the verb. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, here it is, made us alive. So subject and verb, God made us alive. The biggest points. So I want to take those two things. God made us alive, and we're going to break those things down in who we are now. First God, and then the made us alive. First God as in why God did it. Talk about God, his character, and then made us alive. 
what God has done. What he's done. So first, but God. But let's talk about God. Because in verses 4 through 7, it tells us some things about God. It tells us about his character. Why God did it. Now, when we get to number 3 here, who we are now, when we get to the, number 3, we're also going to have a why God did it section. Uh, but the why God did it section and third section is for us. But there's also a why God did it for him. So that's what we're looking at right now. Why God did it because of himself. Because of his character. There's four things that are, that are pointed out about his character in verses 4 through 7. First, but God being rich in mercy. God is merciful. The Old Testament uses this word hesed, or chesed, which is God's loyal, merciful love towards us. Steadfast love towards us. His hesed, he's merciful. Mercy doesn't occur very, very much in Paul's writings, this word mercy. Um, Paul uses it in Romans 9, explaining why God saved. He'll have mercy on whom he'll have mercy. Apart from God's mercy, no hope exists for humanity. Mercy for us is where he's not going to get you, give you what you deserve. You deserve death, he's not going to give it to you. That's his mercy. Grace is different, we'll get to that in a second. But the first thing about God's character is that he's merciful. The next thing about God's character shown to us is that he's loving. But God being rich in mercy, here it is, because of the great love with which he loved us. Paul is is explaining to us that God is not some kind of passive onlooker to our salvation. Rather, he's the primary actor in our salvation. His love for us is the thing that compels him and causes him to be the primary actor in our salvation. Now, right now we're just noting God's character. We're going to talk about what he's done. But we need to be amazed at his character first. He's merciful. He's loving. He's also gracious. He's going to give you what you don't deserve. Mercy is where he's not going to get you what, give you what you do deserve. Grace is when he's going to give you what you don't deserve. What we should have gotten is, is wrath, not grace. But then he's going to switch it and take away his wrath and then give us grace. Undeserved favor is what this is. Undeserved favor. Favor. He's merciful, he's loving, he's gracious, and also you can see in verse 7 that he's kind. So that in the coming ages he might show us the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness for eternity. Don't miss this. So that in the coming ages he might show us the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness. For all eternity we will experience the infinite riches of his kindness. Coming ages, all eternity, we The trophies of his grace will keep receiving more and more of all the graces that he wants to give us for ages to come. God made us alive. God. He's merciful. He's loving. He's gracious. And he's kind. This is why why God did it because of who he is. Now, who we are spiritually. Now let's talk about what he's done. God made us alive. He has made us alive. What has God done? Verse 4, God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we're dead in our trespasses, made us alive. This means that he has saved us. By grace, we have been saved. This is a perfect participle, which just means it's placing the emphasis on the abiding consequences of this. It's, it's placing the emphasis on God's saving actions, action of us, making us alive as something that's abiding. The consequences of God's actions will never, ever stop. So when he says, God has made us alive, it's saying, you are my people that I have saved, and you will remain my people, and you will remain saved forever. 
This is what he's done for us. He's made us alive. So as we look at God's work, or we look at uh, making us alive, these are the things that he has done. This is his work. We first, what we've seen is that the main verb, God has made us alive. This is referring to the new birth from John chapter 3, when Nick at night comes to him and he's like, what do I need to do? You need to be born again. Um, he, uh, he has caused us to be made alive. We were dead spiritually and he made us alive. The new birth took place within us and it had to take place. Just to give you an illustration, I want you to picture it this way. Um, I'm going to read you a very familiar story from the New Testament. And I want you, instead of just reading this as physically what's happening in this particular story, I want you to relate it spiritually to you. So this is you. This isn't Lazarus. This is you. Paul, or, I'm sorry, Jesus goes to Lazarus' uh, hometown. Mary and Martha are there. They're weeping. They're crying. Lazarus is dead. Three days, they've already put him into the tomb. Uh, and they told him not to go over there. In the King James, it says, behold, he stinketh. He's been dead for three days. I mean, he's, been, he's gone, right? And Jesus sees them very upset uh, because they, their brother's dead and he's been dead for three days. And it says that Jesus even wept. So he has compassion with them. And then Jesus is deeply moved again. And he comes to the tomb and it was a cave. And the stone was already rolled up against it. And Jesus said, take the stone away. And Martha, the sister of the dead, said, Lord, by this time there'll be an odor. That's the King James. He stinketh. For he has been dead four days. And Jesus said to her, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would not see the glory of God? And so they took away the stone. And Jesus lifted up his eyes to the Father and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me. But I said this on account of many people standing around that they may believe that you sent me. And when he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice. Now, in the text it says, Lazarus, come out. But I just want you to hear your name. John Chambers, come out. I'm laying completely dead. Present but not voting. Spiritually dead laying there. And what does it say? This is, this is so picturesque of what happens to us whenever we have absolutely nothing we can do. We lay there dead Hopeless unless the Lord God Almighty calls us from the grave. And he looks at us and he says, hey, John Chambers, come out of here. You're dead spiritually, but I want you to be alive. And it says the man who had, who had died got up. He rose from the dead. He came out and still his hands and feet were bound with linen and strips. We were bound in our sin and his face was wrapped with cloth. And they said, unbind him now and let him go. And we were now unbound from sin and we walk forward as the new man. This is what happens to us. When it says we've been made alive, we were completely laying there dead. And God, out of unbelievable mercy, looks at us and says, get up. Come forward. You're bound to sin no more. That's the thing that God has done. He has made us alive with Christ. Don't miss the with Christ. The little refrain He's going to raise us up with Christ. He's going to make us alive with Christ. He's going to raise us up with him or with Christ. He's going to seat us with Christ also. But I get ahead of myself. The first thing he's done is that he's made us alive. The second thing is he's saved us by grace. Even when we're dead in our trespasses, he made us alive with Christ. By grace you have been saved. He has saved us by grace, which I've already pointed out. It's in this perfect condition, which means it's always going to happen. The consequences of God's action 
will abide continually forever. You are always saved. And you are always saved by grace. He has made us alive and he has saved us. But don't miss this. This is where it gets, oh man, it gets awesome. He has saved us by grace, verse 6. And he has raised us up with him. We've also been raised up with him. So we are made alive and we're raised up and we're seated. All of this with him, with Christ. Emphasizing our union with Jesus. This raising us up with him is the Greek word uh, synergirin. This is a form of kind of our English word where we kind of get this word synchronized. It provides for us a great illustration of this with him, with Christ, with him that thankfully we're all kind of familiar with. Um, I'm not techno, but I'm going to do my best to try technologically, as my son says, technogery. I'm not very necessarily uh, technogery gifted, but I can I, I understand this. Um, it provides us with a decently understanding of this, this refrain of with him, with him, with, with Christ, with Christ. It's similar when we plug our, our phone into our computer and all the data from our computer that we want then sinks to our phone. It's the same kind of idea. We're with him. This over, we've been synced with Jesus now. We have union with Jesus. Now, make sure that we understand it. It's not the reverse. Jesus doesn't now been synced to us, okay? He's the computer. We're the phone, right? He is the one that's putting all the junk in us. We're not sending our stuff. I know I, Apple does that now, and it breaks down my illustration, and every illustration breaks down. But let's just follow me, right? All the stuff here from Jesus coming to us, and we are completely synced into Christ now. In some kind of astonishing way, this is what this means, if I'm explaining my illustration, is that when Jesus was raised from the dead 2,000 years ago, John Chambers got up with him. When Jesus was raised 2,000 years ago, you stood up with him, and you walked out of the grave. He called you forth that particular day, just like he called Lazarus forth. Snodgrass puts it this way. Klein Snodgrass says it this way. If you're looking for a name for your kids. As he died physically, as Jesus died physically, we were also dead spiritually. So as Jesus was raised physically, we were then raised spiritually. And our life has been synced to him now. And we have union with Christ. So what has God done? He's made us alive He saved us. He's raised us with him. And don't miss verse 6, the end of it. He's seated us with him in the heavenly places. Now, Paul's already tipped his hat to verse 6 as he did back up in verse, chapter 1, verse 20, where it says that Jesus, that God worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and he seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places. And now he's coming down back to this idea and he's saying that we have also been seated with Christ in the heavenly places. Now, this does not mean that we're divine. We're not divine. We're seated with the divine one. We're awaiting in this phase of already not yet. But this is what it does mean for us right now. When we are seated in the heavenly places with Christ right now, this is what it means. Right now, we have superiority and authority over all the evil powers described in verses 1 through 3 that were over us. That means you don't have to sin. That, that temptation, that slow, gradual killing of you of demons can be kicked out of here. No thanks. I, I don't have to give in to that. We have superior, superiority and authority over all the wretched things painted to us in verses 1 through 3. Those things are gone now. We've been seated in the heavenly places with him. This is what God has done. Made us alive. 
saved us by grace, raised us up with him, and he has seated us with him in the heavenly places. This is who we are now. We are spiritually alive people. And there's one last section, section three. It's what we are now. It's who we are now, but also what we are now. Number three, we're God's workmanship. We're God's workmanship. So when we talked about why God did it for himself because of his character, we're also going to look at why God did it but for you. Like, what does it mean now you're supposed to do? He's done some stuff. Why did he do it for us? We can see those three things in this text. But uh, let me read them to us just to make sure we're all here. So that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved. He's already said that in verse 5. He's saying it to it again in verse 8. For by grace you've been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It's the gift of God. (laughs) Well, we're going to come to that. What an amazing, amazing statement. Not a result of work so that no one can boast. For we are his workmanship. What we are now is his workmanship. We are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus. For good works, which God prepared before him that we should walk in them. So, we, what we are now is God's workmanship. And why did God do this? We've already talked about why he did it for himself. But why did God do it for us? What is it that he's doing for us? First thing that we need to see is that he's the gift giver. He's the gift giver. Namely, the giver of salvation. Salvation, grace, faith, all these things are a gift. For by grace you have been saved through faith... And this is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God. So it starts in verse 8 with a four. Four. Four, by grace you have been saved. So he's he's creating or making or giving a reason to us. Four. And then he tells us, by grace you have been saved through through faith. Uh, And this is a very, very comprehensive yet very, very succinct description of our salvation. Quite comprehensive. As a matter of fact, he throws in the big three. The three foundation words, right? That we have salvation, grace, and faith. The three, the three big foundation words for the Christian faith. Salvation, grace, and faith. Salvation means that we, we've been delivered away from death, delivered away from slavery, delivered away from wrath, described in verse 3. But we also see grace, which we've already talked about. God's free, kind of undeserved favor and mercy toward us. We also see faith, the humble trust that we have in Christ in which we receive the salvation for ourselves. And so Paul makes a very interesting statement after that. For by grace you have been saved through faith. Very succinct, very comprehensive statement about our salvation. And then the interesting statement. And this is not your own doing. And this is not your own doing. What is not my own doing? What? What is not my own doing? Grace? Grace is not my own doing? Okay, right, that's true. God did that. Grace is not my own doing. That's his gift, clearly. Grace is not my own doing. Out of those three foundationals, grace, salvation, faith, grace is not my own doing. So what's not my own doing? Salvation? Salvation's not my own doing. Right, of course. God did that too. That's his gift. So, which one, is it just those two, or is it all? It must be faith then, 
that when I say, this is not my own doing, okay, well, grace and salvation are my own doing, but faith must be my doing then. It must be that that's mine. When we look at, this is not your own doing, what are you saying is not my own doing? All three, two of those, two out of the three, one out of three, which one is it? I'm not sure that that's the case either. I'm not sure that faith is even your own doing. We can all agree grace is not our own doing. That's God. We can all agree that salvation is not our own doing. That's God. But faith. And you say, okay, wait a second, Fudd. It, it feels like it is me because I'm the one that actually believes. So, like, it's me doing that work. So it feels like that is my own doing. And I'm going to say, of course, yes. I mean, obviously, it is you putting faith in Jesus. You're not a, you're not a robot, right? This is true. But whence did that faith come from? Did you just conjure it out of nowhere? Did you just muster it up from your own heart? Because our own heart, described in verses 1 through 3, it's pretty bleak. How is it that that person musters faith out of the air? I don't think that that's the case. Ferguson comments on the kind of Greek structure of verses 8 and 9 in a very helpful way. By grace, you have been saved through faith. So yes, faith is active. You, we all, we really did believe, yes. But faith is itself the work of grace, not your own doing. In fact, this faith is then a gift from God. So God gives you the gift of faith, and then you exercise that gift of faith back in him. And it's all still your, like you are still willingly doing it as a real human making real choices. But you didn't just conjure that up out of nowhere. So back up to the top. What is not my own doing? Grace, salvation, and faith. All of that is his doing. And logically, this only makes sense, right? Marita also says, the grammar indicates that the whole of salvation is to be viewed as God's gift. Grace is his gift. Faith is his gift. Salvation is his gift. And logically, it only makes sense as you look at verse 9 when it says, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It's a gift of God. And here it is, not a result of works so that no one can boast. Logically, it only makes sense that faith is a gift as well when you read verse 9. Not a result of works. Because if I conjured it up by myself and it wasn't a gift to me, then I did a work. And I can boast. I did it. And that's not the case. All three of the foundationals, salvation, grace, and faith, were all gifts. None of them were a work for us. Or we can emphatically boast. We can boast. And that is not what God wants us to do. That is not at all. So why he did it, he's the gift giver of your salvation, your faith, and the grace given to us. But also, which leads me into why he did it, he did it for his glory. Because he doesn't want you to be the boaster in yourself. He wants you to only be the boaster in him. So he did it not only because he's the gift giver, he did it because for his glory. Or so that no one boasts, but everyone boasts in him. As we sing, my soul will boast in the Lord. 100% completely in him. My soul wants to only boast in him. One commentator says this, it's neither your achievement nor reward for any of your deeds or religion of of religion or philanthropy. Since therefore there is no room for human merit, there is no room for human boasting either. Salvation is God's gift, lest any man should boast. Christians are always uncomfortable in the presence of pride, for they sense its incongruity. We shall not, this is John Stott, we shall not be able to strut around heaven like peacocks. Heaven will be filled with the exploits of Christ and the praises of God. 
there will indeed be display in heaven. Not self-display, however, but the display of the incomparable wealth of God's grace, mercy, and kindness through Christ Jesus. All that to say is, the reason why God did, did this is so that you would become a boaster in the Lord. That one page over with Paul, we would say this, Galatians 6, 14. Far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. The reason why he did it is because he wants you to only boast in him. He's the gift giver and he wants you to live for his glory. And he wants you to only boast in him. But the last reason given to us is in the very last verse. That he has a job for us. He has a job for us. He did it for you because he has a job for you. For he has workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. For good works. Now before we get to the good works part, we cannot zoom past the very beginning of verse 10. A lot, a lot of times you get through not like 1 through 3 is the bleak part, 4 through 9 is what God's done. Verse 10 is here's your good works. But if you do that in verse 10, you miss the first uh, few words there and they are just amazingly golden. For we are his workmanship. Romans 9, I'm sorry, Romans 1 uses this word workmanship when describing the heavens and the creation. They're, they're his workmanship. The heavens declare the glories of God. And he's looking at you and he's saying, you are my workmanship. A better way to understand this, F.F. Bruce says it this way. Before we get to the what to do, the God of the entire universe is calling you his workmanship. Or as F.F. Bruce says, this can be interpreted, you are his work of art and his masterpiece. Now, not to blow your head up with like, well, all right, I'm God's masterpiece. It's because of the work that he's done in you in Christ. The salvation that he has done in Christ is a work of art masterpiece so that you are quite special to him because of what he's done in Christ in you. But the gift that you've been given in salvation through Jesus Christ and as he looks at you now is work of art. Don't ever, ever Think too lowly of yourself now. Verse 1 through 3, bad picture. Now, you're God's work of art and God's masterpiece. And he loves you. He is unbelievably in love with you. Because of the work of Christ in you. For Christ's glory, not your own. But nevertheless, that's still there. We are his workmanship. We are God's work of art and his God's masterpiece because of the work of Jesus in us. (laughs) That's unbelievable. Stott says it this way. Salvation is creation. Recreation, new creation. Creation, and then we die. And then we need to be recreated, and now we, now we have new creation in Christ Jesus. Now, we get to the good works. Good works. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works. This is so key for us. This is so key for us. Good works are not uh, the root of our salvation, they're the fruit of our salvation. It's the easiest way to remember it. Good works are not the things that save you. Good works are the things that follow because you've been saved. Good works are not the root of your salvation, they're the fruit of your salvation. You don't work for your salvation, you work from your salvation. 
Good works follow because you are in Christ Jesus. The reformers just said it this way. It is faith alone that justifies, but faith that justifies can never be alone. As in, good works always follows. So if you don't have good works in your life that created, that because the Lord has prepared them beforehand. Like every single one of you that are his workmanship now, he has set before you good works. And if you don't have them in your life, if you're not doing those things, you are not working towards being saved. The only question that you have to ask is, have I been saved? Not because I need to do good works in order to be saved, but because I'm a follower of Jesus, I should be doing them. So I don't need to go do good works so I can make sure I'm saved. I need to go back to the cross. I need to confess my sin and trust in Christ and confess my absolute need for him to come in and save me. And now I'm saved or I could die right then and go to heaven or the Lord would keep you alive for me to die as gain, but for me to live as Christ. And if the Lord gives me more life, then we live doing good works, not because they're saving you, but because you're already saved. So, in the same way that we are his workmanship, now we do good works for God. God has worked in us and caused our salvation, and now we go on to do good works for the glory of God in order that other people might see Christ and be saved. Paul's intentionally using this word work twice. And now, we're no longer present but not voting. We're absolutely present. and We're absolutely made, made alive spiritually. And this is the way that we live our life. The picture was bleak, no doubt, beforehand. But who we are now is unbelievably beautiful. It's unbelievably beautiful. We are alive, saved, raised, and seated with him. All for his glory. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you so much for your love, your mercy, your kindness, your grace, these characteristics laid out for us in this text of who you are and that you are the gift giver, that you desire for us to live for your glory and boast only in you, that you have created us now in Christ Jesus to be your work of art your masterpiece. You have called us your workmanship. This is to be painted in the most positive, glorying terms. That we are yours. And that is an unbelievable thing. Thank you, God, that you are rich in mercy. Thank you that even though we were willful, disobedient devil worshipers, laying in a grave, completely dead, you looked at us and you called our name and you said, come here, you're mine. And we got up and all the shackles and all the bandages and bondage to sin fell off of us. And now we have superiority and authority over the evil powers described in verses one through three because of Jesus for his glory. Help us live in light of this. We pray this all in the precious name of Jesus. Amen.